You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, violent protests at Apple's main iPhone plant in China, the latest on the Bloomberg scoop that could impact sales ahead of the holiday season. Plus, Sam Bankman-Fried says the FTX empire quickly went from $60 billion in collateral to $9 billion, according to an apology letter to staff. More on that and how SBF got his start on Wall Street. And Elon Musk is having second thoughts about that moderation council after saying activists broke the deal. More on that and Musk's new trend of quoting, well, himself. Meanwhile, though, let's dig into what happened at the main iPhone-making plant in China as hundreds of workers clashing with security personnel after almost a month under tough COVID restrictions. I'm pleased to say Bloomberg's own Ian King is here for more details. And, Ian, you follow Foxconn in particular. And, well, had this been anticipated? What sort of an impact does this have on the output and the production as well as the people? Yeah, I mean, from an Apple perspective, this is not entirely surprising given that we've seen increasing pressure in China, you know, people essentially fighting back, being sick of these COVID lockdowns. Um, So for Apple, this isn't surprising, but it's also kind of worrying that this is an escalation that we're actually seeing some form of open protest and open resistance to these rules and, and, you know, if you take Foxconn's word for it, everything's okay now, don't worry, it was just a dispute and, and we'll deal with it in the contractual framework and everything will be fine. But in the overall context of what's happening in China, you know, the, the videos that some of our colleagues were able to take a look mm-hmm. at for us and get hold of are very worrying. Ian, you cover a, a broad range of technologies for us at Bloomberg, principally the chip sector, but also kind of supply chains more broadly. This is like really difficult for Foxconn, but what does it mean broadly about US-China relations? Because technology is basically at the heart of that conversation, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you've got an escalating trade dispute between the world's two largest economies and what's being used by the US as its chief tool to attack China or to to hold China back is technology and semiconductors in particular. So you have this escalating dispute, but at the same time, that part of China is an absolutely crucial part of this diverse, wonderful, call it what you like, 
complicated supply chain that spans the globe. So much of the world's electronics economy goes through that part of the world. If we can't rely upon that, if there is going to be increasing difficulties of doing business there, then there has to be some huge changes. And those changes, at least for investors, are going to mean initially huge amounts of costs and a lot of time probably to relocate some of those factories and some of that you know, expertise that exists there. One to watch, no matter who you are, from a personal perspective and indeed from an investor perspective. Ian King, thank you for taking some time with us today. And let's continue this conversation. Let's get the investor perspective. I'm very pleased to say that Anne Berry, managing partner and founder of Threadneedle Ventures, is with us. An investor in Apple, also an investor in Disney and Amazon and Meta. So many conversations to be having with you, Anne, at the moment. And let's just talk, first and foremost, about the Apple conversation. How worrying is this sort of violence erupting? One that you'd already braced yourself for, perhaps. Well, the reason I find it so uh, worrying, Caroline, is this is at least one we know about. Which are the ones we don't know about? So as we look ahead to how we roll out at the end of this year, which has been a very tentative one coming into the holiday season, if more of this is happening across China that we're not aware of, it means we are going to get some more bad news on supply chains as we head into the beginning of the next one. That's what I'm looking out for, certainly in the public markets. Hey, Anne, this is a really interesting story, right? Why are we concerned about Zhengzhou? Zhengzhou accounts for four out of every five iPhone 14 Pro handsets made, right? When you look at the stock story, the equity story, are you worried? You know, this is a stock that's fared better than the S&P 500, but it's still down. And and a lot of voices in the market saying, hmm, I'm not sure how impactful this will be in either direction for Apple. Well, it's, you, you, you heard from Ian just the importance of that part of the world in terms of the concentration of chip manufacturing and consumer electronics manufacturing. I think in terms of the impact on the Apple story, the much bigger one has been around global demand. Everyone's accepted that supply chain disruption is going to be par for the course uh, for a little bit uh, longer. The, the big uncertainty right now is how is consumer sentiment, how is consumer debt going to start to dampen expenditure on discretionary items such as the iPhone, and when is inflation go into a bait so that disposable income start coming back up again. I think those are the bigger drivers for the Apple story. And let's delve into that a little bit more, Anne, because of course you do have a wide array of investments and indeed areas that you like to focus on, retail first and foremost as well. Talk to us a little bit about as we anticipate how Apple products will sell, but how every product will sell in the next few days. What is the consumer looking like to you? Well, you're really seeing, Caroline, and we've seen this, this isn't the first time, we saw this in 2008, 2009, my background's uh, private equity, and whenever this kind of dynamic came about, we would look to try to find two areas of retail to focus on, and including in tech and consumer products that are tech oriented. Higher income consumers tend to do fine. It is the lower income households that really struggle. The higher income individuals and consumers tend to trade down. We've seen that with Walmart. I'm sure that some of the Best Buy news that we saw where people are bargain hunting, that's your higher income consumer trying to go and find really great deals right now. That's not your struggling uh, household that's really been hit the hardest by inflation, really been hit the hardest by energy prices. So I think we're going to see value retail do very well because everyone's going there. And I think we're going to see luxury hold up when it comes to things like gifting and special holiday season expenditure. It's really bifurcated, isn't it? And and it's painful, as always. The same people seem to get hurt. The same people seem to win. But interestingly, do the same players win? I'm thinking also of Amazon, which you have a big exposure to. This is a company that's become so large in every part of our lives, whether it's the way we consume, the visuals, whether it's about the way we spend. Are they going to do well navigating this environment? Do you know what I love about Amazon, actually, Caroline? And you know, I've talked about this in the past. I think that Amazon becomes its most innovative and its most creative. And frankly, it's gutsiest when it comes 
comes to these kinds of environments. So Amazon really announced that they're going to be launching telehealth services. I'm, I'm sure you saw that. They've been trying to push into healthcare. They bought PillPack. They've been looking at ways to integrate uh, pharma into their prime um, services. But this is where you see the Amazon stepping back and saying, OK, how am I going to allocate my capital now? It's actually not going to be on consumer stuff. It's going to be in services and places like healthcare. So I think those pivots are actually the strongest indicators right now for where we're going to see longer-term investment trends. And another huge story of the week, Disney. Bob yeah. Iger back. Yeah. Bob Chapek out. Your reaction, please, as an investor in that company. Well, I'm going to start as a Brit, since there are now three of us here. But I was oh, playing the fourth so the far. Fourth, the fourth, really. <laughs> so I was playing take that back for good, almost as the kind of the jump off <laughs> for when I saw that announcement. Look, I think it's uh, it's very good to have a safe pair of hands back in the saddle. And I think, Ed and Caroline, when you look at what's happened over the last six to nine months, uh, whether it's private companies, whether it's public ones, the businesses that have had bad news, whether it's attrition subscription in Netflix, uh, whether it's been um, Snap, for example, where we've seen the number of users fall down. Let's go and use that word again, Caroline, bifurcation. The ones that have at least come out with a plan have been rewarded. Netflix. We don't really know if it's going to work in the long run with their ad tier, but they've been rewarded. The ones with no plan, Snap, have been absolutely punished. Disney, to me, is going to be a little bit somewhere in the middle right now. So we've got a trusted, safe pair of hands back in the CEO seat, but we need to hear what the plan is going to be. And until we hear what that plan is, uh, I, I do think we're going to have some uncertainty around Disney. For the moment, I'm pleased, but I want to hear the details. Hey, Anne, we're so grateful to have you to wrap the news of the week. But just very quickly before you go, give us the Anne Berry 2023 outlook. Oh, you know what? I wish I were the bearer of brilliant news going into the Thanksgiving season, but oh. I've been a bit more bearish than some. And I think that's because we're riding this little bubble at the moment of optimism that the Fed's going to start slowing down on their rate hikes. But I think this issue of how, how much the consumer uh, is suffering, not just in the U.S., also in Europe, I don't think we talk enough about Europe here in the US yeah. right now and just and the impact. I think we're going to see that filtering through in 2023. So I'm really looking at much uh, sort of safer stories right now, much less discretionary spending. I'm looking at all sorts of investments, particularly on the private side, that are sort of longer term plays. Okay. Threadneedle Ventures, managing partner and founder, Anne Berry, thank you. It's still the story of the week of the month of the year. Let's continue to dive deeper into what propelled the fall of crypto exchange FTX. The founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, apologizing to employees for the crypto exchange's failure. Bloomberg's Annie Massa joins us for more on what we've learned from the bankruptcy hearing again, Annie, and also his own background. First and foremost, what do you make of any sort of apology coming at this point? That's right. So Sam Bankman-Fried has apologized now in a letter to uh, the exchange's employees, and he sort of said that he wishes that they didn't end up in this place, that he's sorry for what went wrong. I mean, it's up to those employees who have really experienced dramatic fallout from this implosion to decide uh, whether that's enough of an apology for them. But um, he is still speaking out about what happened and giving his side of the story. Hey, Annie, if you're new to this story, I have some sympathy because each day a new name comes up. The latest name is Jane Street. Could you explain to the audience the relationship between Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX and Jane Street? 
Sure, there are a lot of players to keep track of, like you mentioned. So Sam Bankman fried ran FTX, uh, the now bankrupt crypto exchange, once the second largest crypto exchange in the world. But before all of that and before this dramatic downfall, he worked at a Wall Street trading firm called Jane Street. And Jane Street is really known um, for its obsessive focus on risk. And it's a very successful trading firm, and his pedigree and background at Jane Street is part of what helped him get to the level that he got to. It's part of what helped him impress VC investors and people all around both traditional Wall Street and crypto. Um, Jane Street's known for attracting really um, you know, very uh, high IQ math nerds. It's known for its love of uh, puzzles and games and uh, and just for its success, but it's a very stealthy firm. So in our story, we pointed out today that FTX doesn't seem to have brought to bear uh, Jane Street's focus on risk to its own enterprise, mm. to say the least. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that Overall, over at Jane Street, they permanently were trying to learn from previous mistakes, trying to analyze what had gone wrong, trying to keep on innovating and, and looking at risk. He seems to have done basically the opposite. Many were blamed because of the stratospheric way in which the company grew. Some would talk it just messy accounting, whatever they want to be di di divulging of it. But the bridge that he built between crypto and traditional finance and regulators, how much has that now seemingly been undercut by what he was up to? Yeah, so he had this background uh, from a traditional Wall Street firm, you know, from traditional financial markets. Jane Street's an enormous player in ETFs. And, um, and Jane Street's, you know, well-known and very well-respected. So he brought this pedigree really to uh, the world of crypto, and it helped ingratiate him and, and helped make other, you know, investors feel comfortable with him and uh, helped really, helped him impress them, impress the rest of the trading world. So, I mean, what's happened at FTX has really like boggled the minds of those VC investors of traditional Wall Street and of crypto as well, um, the way that it's unraveled so rapidly and the intertwined, really, um, really deeply intertwined ties between Alameda, his uh, trading firm and hedge fund, and FTX. And it's, it's really shocked um, everyone in, in, in all of those spheres. All right, just very deep, terrific reporting there from Bloomberg's Annie Master. Thank you. Coming up, we'll be joined by Autodesk CEO Andrew Anagnost to talk about his vision for the company and how it's navigating a pretty challenging macroeconomic environment right now. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. 
It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Autodesk slumped as much as 10% on Wednesday before pairing losses. Still, it was the worst performing stock on the Nasdaq 100. This after it cut its full-year billings outlook. Analysts say demand for multi-year contracts fell as customers preferred one-year contracts. That's the story of Autodesk. They want to move to annual renewals. But it's also the challenging macro environment. Fortunately, Autodesk CEO Andrew Anagnost is here with us. So I guess the question at this point, Andrew, is why? Why are customers behaving in this way? What are you learning from your earnings report this season? Well, you know, first off, we're learning that the business is highly resilient. It's highly diverse. So we're seeing a lot of uh, great outcomes from the diversity of business outside of China and Russia. But we're also seeing sensitivity to currency fluctuations. We we saw that in the quarter. we, We see that moving forward. But we're also seeing softness in Europe. And like you said earlier in the introduction, one of the things we're trying to do is we're moving our our customers away from paying upfront for multi-year contracts to buying multi-year contracts that are billed annually. And, you know, when you're entering a period of uncertainty, people start to conserve cash. And that's what you saw with regards to the billing guidance. And I think a lot of the reaction you saw to the stock wasn't really about what we're talking about in the next quarter. It's about some of the signs that we were projecting about next year. Yeah. Talk about those projections, though, because our Bloomberg intelligence analysts, many of analysts out there sort of talking about you were very optimistic back in 2020, almost perhaps too optimistic, setting yourself grand targets that then due to macro, maybe due to micro, you're having to pair back from. How hard is it in this environment to forecast for the next year, to forecast out further than the next year? Yeah, remember, we were were optimistic before the pandemic hit. And certainly, we actually performed incredibly well through the entire pandemic. But really, what's really making it hard right now is the unprecedented volatility we're seeing in currency exchange rates. I mean, we we signaled next year that there's probably a five-point headwind on on our revenue, our, our as reported revenue, just from currency headwinds. And, you know, and also, the, look, the uncertainty in Europe right now, one of your earlier speakers spoke about the fact that Europe's not getting enough airtime. I would tend to agree with that. You know, we're about to head into the Russian winter there. And, you know, that, that could inject more volatility and more, more concern into our end markets and into other people's end markets as we move forward. So it pays to be cautious as we kind of get through this winter season and head into next year. But currency fluctuations make it really hard to know where things are going to go. And also some of these concerns with regards to energy costs in Europe are, are affecting some of our biggest customers. Talk fundamentals here, though, because almost an FX conversion is in some way technical. But really, how bleak does the economic outlook look in Europe? And do you have to start pivoting away, start deciding that you're going to change up your business, look at the costs over there, look at the way in which you thought you would penetrate Europe more broadly? Absolutely not. Yes, because you're, you're right. 
FX is a technical thing. Constant currency-wise, our business looks a lot stronger, and Europe continued to grow. It just slowed, all right? And I, I think it's important to recognize that Europe will continue to slow. However, here's what's important. The customers who are using our products are working on critical parts of the economy. They're working on buildings, they're working on infrastructure, they're working on manufacturing. They need these products to complete what they're doing. And in tough times, what they do is invest in greater digitization. And what we want to do is partner with our European customers, our American customers, our Asian customers to help them digitize more effectively in a world where they're frankly telling us they have capacity problems, labor shortages, material, material access shortages. They have more business than they can actually execute on right, right now. And I think that's what we have to pay attention for the long term. Hey, Andrew, I think it's worth reminding the audience, right, what Autodesk does. You guys make software for architects, for big construction projects that helps with design. And I know you want to move into other areas. That leads me to M&A. M&A, are there options for you there? I know there's some chatter in the market about some private names, some ArcGIS makers. Esri is one. Have you tried to buy a name like that? Could you buy a name like that? Well, we never comment publicly on, on, on M&A, but what I will say is we've always been an acquisitive company and we're super interested in growing adjacents around our business. We want to fully connect design and make together in the cloud. So we're always looking at things that lean into the future of where our market's going. So look for us to continue to be acquisitive. Uh, valuations have reset. They reset of, of quite a bit this year, so we were less acquisitive than usual years. But look for us to get back to our normal levers, levels of acquisitiveness as we move forward. Hey, uh, another big story this week, HP, cutting up to 6,000 jobs over the next three years. I know that's on the hardware side, but you know, in terms of financial discipline, in terms of reacting to the macro picture, what cost cut measures, what discipline measures are you taking? You know, the good news is, is we've always been really disciplined heading through this entire cycle. We never tried to get over our skis in terms of investing for the future. We've tried to invest prudently, strategically. We've taken adjustments as we went along. If, if, we, if we found ourselves building up uh, headcount where we shouldn't, we adjusted as we went along. We've always done small adjustments. So we feel that we're in a really good place, that we can prudently yeah. move forward. We're going to continue to invest. And if there's a problem, we just turn off the hiring spigot. Okay. Autodesk CEO Andrew Anagnos, it's really a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's over in San Francisco. And Ed, just talk to us once again, Elon Musk, pulling out another rabbit in the hat in terms of the Twitter saga. What's he doing now? Well, everything we've talked about has been so focused on the company, the layoffs, how the company's structured. But what about the platform, right? He tweets on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, that activists that he appears to have had an agreement with have reneged on that bargain, on that deal, uh, which was part of his reasoning for forming a moderation council. Go back a few weeks. He talks about this moderation council being a wide and diverse range of voices who would make basically content moderation and policy decisions. Now, the reason I bring that up is that some key things have happened in recent days, right? And you think about the actions that have been taken. He said that he would not reinstate President Trump's Twitter account without in being informed by this moderation council. November 18th, he tweets the poll. You see that on your screen. 
the majority of respondents vote in favour of reinstating Trump. So, on the following day, the 19th, he does reinstate Trump, though Trump says he's not interested in returning to the platform he's sticking with Truth Social. Fast forward, November 22nd, present day, he tweets. Now, what's not clear, does that mean that Musk is done with the Moderation Council and that idea is over, or does it mean it's been compromised or undermined by what Musk calls activists? We don't know who these activists are specifically, but it's an interesting question because now what we're starting to see, Caroline, is platform decisions, not mm. company decisions, but things that in, in, you know, they impact your and my ability, the audience's ability to use the Twitter platform. And let's just talk a little bit also about how he uses the platform himself because, Ed, it's taking a lot, it would seem, Elon Musk, of his own advice on Twitter at the moment when it comes to his management style of Twitter. In a latest column by our Business Week friend and colleague Max Chafkin, he writes that the new Twitter CEO is impressed by points that he himself once made previously as the Tesla CEO, of course, which he still is. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin joins us now to explain. It's a really amusing article, but you're sort of poking at something that is brutally real, that he sort of keeps getting sense of self-inflation uh, by the wisdom he's given in previous years. Yeah, uh, in the article I focused on what's kind of a funny phenomenon that anyone who follows Elon Musk will kind of recognize, which is there are these fan accounts that uh, do nothing essentially but tweet uh, quotes from Elon Musk, and Musk has a tendency to respond to those in the affirmative, so uh, he'll see something that he has already said and sort of respond exactly or, you know, <laughs> great point or whatever, which is uh, pretty funny uh, just as a behavior, and, and who knows, maybe he's doing it in part as, as, as yet another kind of troll. But I think it's interesting because as Ed is talking about, we are seeing this gigantic, you know, very large social network. He, he paid $44 billion for this thing, borrowed a, a very large sum of money. And so many of the decisions are coming down to basically the whims of, of Elon Musk, uh, where he's, you know, deciding whether or not to ban or or unban uh, people based on, it's, it seems, honestly, how he's feeling at the moment. And we're also seeing a situation where there, the the circle of advisors uh, seems to be very small and seems to, you know, mostly consist of people who are basically telling him what he wants to hear. And when you back away from Twitter, you see that Elon Musk is also running, you know, a very large uh, electric car company. Uh, he's also a, a major defense contractor. And you have to wonder, people who work at those companies ha have to be asking themselves, why is he spending so much time, you know, talking, for instance, to these kind of like wannabe talk show hosts, to these right wing influencers, to these meme accounts? You know, the other day he was he was tweeting with something called Cat Turd, which is like a, you know, right wing memer. Um, it is not necessarily so the behavior that you'd expect from somebody who's um, taking a rigorous or serious approach to running, uh, you know, a social media company. Instead, mm. it's somebody who's treating this like basically like an influencer. Yeah. He's he's playing to the crowd. Yes, Max, you ask at the top of your column, reality distortion field. Anyone? Talk to us about that reality. I mean, as journalists, we've come in for criticism from Musk about how we've covered his Twitter takeover. But what we've got to go on are the tweets that he makes. What have you learned from Musk's tweets since October 27th, 28th, when he closed the deal and owns the company? 
Well, I, a couple of things. One is, you know, the reality distortion field, that cuts both ways. And I feel like over the last, you know, five years or so, as we've been talking about Musk, you know, a point that, you know, lots of people, including myself, bring up all the time is that he's an amazing marketer. And this this sense of like a different reality, the sense that anything is possible, that stuff has all really worked to his advantage um, and has allowed him to build, you know, the largest, most valuable automaker, one of the largest companies in the world, pretty much against all odds. And I think what we're seeing is kind of the other side of the coin here where, um, you know, he's in this very, it, what feels like a very narrow world, right? He's sitting there reading the mentions. And, um, and, and you know, Musk's point, right, that, uh, oh, the, the journalists are out to get him or, you know, the other day he was accusing the Associated Press of being part of, you know, the far left establishment. You know, it's honestly pretty hard to know how seriously to take that stuff. It, it feels like it's mostly just about trying to juice engagement for yeah. Twitter. And, you know, as as Twitter has continued under Musk, he's been posting these charts, right, where they, they gained a, a million unique visitors over the last week or something, yeah. and which is kind of cool, but it, it feels like, you know, this may be very short-sighted. Max, we always like your long-term perspective. Thanks for bringing it. Bring my business week columnist, Max Chafkin there. Meanwhile, look, one of the things that we're all noticing is the employee exodus at Twitter has been raising concerns about diversity at the company. Lots of pictures circulating of well, far more male influence left building with Elon. It's a problem, not just for Twitter, but the tech space at large, of course. And we want to just look at the metaverse now. A new report says women are spending more time in the metaverse and are more likely to spearhead initiatives in the next generation of the internet but men still hold 90% of the executive positions at organized shaping this emerging market. Now, the report by McKinsey says, quote, women are still locked out of leadership roles, key to establishing an inclusive metaverse. Women hold just 8 to 10% of leadership positions at organizations driving metaverse standards. For more, we want to get into all of this with Savannah Day Goems founder and CEO of Women X Meta, which aims to place more women at the forefront of Web3 technology. And Savannah, what's really interesting is we went to our audience and we put out a poll and said, A, do you worry about a lack of diversity in Metaverse? Do you think it's going okay? Or why should I care? Most said, why does it matter? Tell us, why does this matter that it's diverse? Because I think if you look at the history women in particular and people of color have been at the center of innovation, yet they don't hold those leadership roles. So if you don't have those voices at the table to make sure that that build has all of the inclusiveness and richness that is offered by innovation and technology, then you're missing out on that opportunity. How are you already seeing that reflected in the very first innings of what's being built in Web3? Well, I think that there are women and there are people of color here, but we don't often get the highlight and the spotlight. And I think that that is um, sort of damaging in terms of how you think about where we're headed in the future, the democracy that was promised in Web3. But we're already seeing that even when you look at AI and other types of technology, it isn't being fed properly mm -hmm. to reflect the diversity of the people that are going to be consuming it. So it is necessary to have that innovation at that conference and at that table. Hey, Savannah. 
I love what you just said about different types of technology. If you allow me, I just want to draw on some of my reporting experiences of the last few years. I was reporting on self-driving, and I had a conversation with Aisha Evans, the CEO of Zooks, about this very topic, and she made a very simple point. They're designing a product, right? It is a future product that doesn't exist now, a fully self-driving vehicle, no steering wheel, no pedals. But her point was very simple. If you're designing something that is for people of all genders and creeds, you have to have those people involved in the process. Otherwise, the product doesn't reflect your market audience. Is that same principle applicable to the metaverse? Absolutely. It's the same kind of ideal about technology and future-focused sort of living, working, and playing, right? So the ideas are generally the same, that if you want everyone to participate and you want to have a profitable product, then you make sure that everyone has a voice in that so that you actually are a company that can thrive in the next generation. So what do you want? Meta and companies like Meta to do Savannah. You know, Meta dominates the market for virtual augmented reality headsets right now. They're kind of the real world manifestation of the metaverse. What can they do to solve this problem? Well, I think it's pretty simple that you just need to do an outreach to those large groups of people who are sitting here waiting to actually participate. I think what we look at is Web3 is already starting to prove that there are individual entrepreneurs who are out here innovating and creating for the next generation. So if you want to participate and you are not already in Web3, then you're going to have to reach out to the people here who are building and who are creating. So Meta is isn't just there as the only company that is making a difference here. It's actually some of the independent entrepreneurs who are. We did see, particularly perhaps in the NFT space, women coming together, a lot of it was felt celebrity endorsed in some way, but coming together and trying to say, let's build, in that way, it was like art that's reflective mm -hmm. of women. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the art that got made was basically hot women, which I don't think is actually all that inclusive. But I'm interested in what you think can be done in the here and now that stops, for example, when Apple first released its health app, they're not being a period tracker. Like that was sort of an evidence in that mm -hmm. particular form of Web 2, where a lack of female engineers and building the software mm -hmm. had an impact. Mm -hmm. What's being lost now and what is more optimistically being built by the women and the people of color already at the table. So I think what's being missed now is that the opportunity to actually have a very um, expansive idea of what the metaverse can be. Because I think what we often look at is just the technology, but we don't think about how the technology can actually solve century-old problems, mm. right? And like. I think, like, for example, we have a healthcare system that is really crippled, right? And if we can find ways to actually look at it across the globe as to how everyone is innovating and sort of bringing that together into how the metaverse can be used to solve that sort of problem, that would be fantastic. Um, I actually think that um, when you think about how women participate here, they don't really want a casual sort of hyped focused um, opportunity. They want to really deeply be engaged, whether it's about healthcare or whether it's about the way that um, they live and they exercise. They want everything to be lifestyle and have real user experience here. And that is what women bring to this. And I think with respect to how you thought about the art and you, saw, you mentioned NFT, I think the people who are artists really want to 
reap the benefit mm. of actually having built something that people appreciate. And in previous generations, once they sold their piece of art, they never really saw any benefit of that later on. And so the NFT gives them an opportunity to actually reap that benefit for many generations to come. And art that is more diverse in and of its very function and form. We want to thank so much WomenX Meta founder and CEO Savannah Day Goins. Thank you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Sticking with the metaverse, thinking about actually NFTs and Thanksgiving, Ed. I don't know if you saw that Macy's is doing its first ever NFT parade balloon. Basically, right here, right now, you can go on and vote what you want this non-fungible token element of a balloon to look like. And then it will be a reality in real life come 2023, Ed. It feels extraordinary timing to be doing this. But I'm kind of hopeful that these sorts of brands, very old brands, are still very much focused on the digital and the here and the now. Macy's Parade is a mainstay for a lot of households. <laughs> They're splitting this audience. I don't know which one I'm tuning into, but wow, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, coming up, we've got so much more to get ahead of our Thanksgiving turkeys. The case of Bitcoin we're gonna discuss going forward and how regulation will shape crypto markets. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Bitcoin's hash rate is at an all-time high, and that is a real indication of the security of the network. Uh, on Ethereum, we're seeing uh, the total value uh, uh, staked at $24 billion. That is an all-time high. Uh, so we think the infrastructure is working beautifully. 
ARK Invest's Kathy Wood, justifying recent investments that she's made in Coinbase, in crypto, and she's sticking with her prediction that Bitcoin will hit a million dollars by 2030, all, of course, despite the current furor around the fallout of FTX of Sam Bankman fried Joining us now to discuss all of this, Elise Killeen, founder and managing partner at Stillmark VC, who invests in Bitcoin-related companies. And to that end, Elise, how much has your world been overshadowed by what currently is unfolding with FTX, which is sort of a centralized part of the decentralized future and hope. But I'm interested whether you found an uprooting of your world too. Caroline, Ed, the biggest lesson here is that the value is in Bitcoin and self-custody and not crypto. And that's a lesson that we get in every bear market when the tide goes out. So as long-term equity investors, Stillmark is focused on the accrual and build of sustainable value and enterprise value specifically. And that hasn't changed in any fundamental way. Instead, I think what's happened here, I hope, the silver lining is that fraud and and dishonest narrative has been washed out, which is necessary for the ecosystem to advance as a whole. And hopefully we get back to the fundamental questions of what we're all doing here and why Bitcoin is important. Well, Elise, let's get to that fundamental question. I always keep a Bitcoin chart handy, as one does. <laughs> and, you know, go back to November 8th, November 9th. That's where the sort of Sam Bankman freed contagion. Look at the far right hand side of your screen. Like, that's where it happened. But between June and October of this year, We've traded sideways on Bitcoin. What is the fundamental driver of this cryptocurrency long term? What gives you the faith? What gives Kathy Wood the faith that it will reach prior highs? Of course. So first of all, Bitcoin fundament fundamentals are intact. What's historically been important for Bitcoin is adoption, of course, and the expansion of Bitcoin's utility set. And that is all progressing at an incredibly rapid clip. We saw Kathy Wood note that Bitcoin's hash rate is up, meaning Bitcoin is increasingly secure. And in addition to that, we're seeing Bitcoin holders become more sophisticated. So as an example, after the FTX collapse, there was a spike, um, a peak in the sale of hardware devices that can allow Bitcoin holders to hold and secure their own Bitcoin. Something notable about this bear market also from a Bitcoin markets perspective is that we see less volatility than we did in the last bear market, which is an indication of an increasing level of sophistication in market participants. And of course, also reflects higher trading volumes in contrast to the prior bear market. What I'm interested in is thinking more about the ecosystem. You say it's getting built still at a very quick clip. What helps or hinders right now? It's interesting that in the state of New York, Kathy Hochul, the governor today, is sort of talking about a moratorium on crypto mining. And that seems to be explicitly more about a proof of work rather than proof of stake and just basically energy efficiency here. But how much does that hinder perhaps the overall focus on hash rates, on Bitcoin as a process and indeed building around it? Well, that's a very interesting point, because actually that was one of SBF and FTX's pet lobbying memes, which is that proof of work is something that is inherently a malevolent activity. But of course, we know it's necessary to be able to secure a decentralized ledger like the Bitcoin ledger. And in addition to that, we know that proof of work has quickly shifted to relying on sustainable energy sources. And in fact, I think it... it offers the opportunity for other industries to take an example of what can be done um, in adopting sustainable energy sources, which of course also have 
the, the capitalistic benefit of being very cheap and miners compete for cheap energy. Um, and so a, a note here on one of the other benefits of fraud and dishonesty being washed out of the system to some degree is that FTX leveraged their their novel and native token FTT mm. to boost their assets and likely as collateral to access loans. Yeah. And with that money, they did they created sort of a really quick scaling in both their size and in their power and perceived authority, including in front of regulators. And so what they did with that was try to impugn often the virtues of the ecosystem, which is Bitcoin and proof of work. And so I hope that by seeing or finding that some of the leaders that regulators might have felt trust for, seeing them, their operations be made transparent and and having dishonesty um, or misdirection revealed will allow regulators some time and space to ask the hard questions that lead them to better sort of discovery, understanding and truth. Okay, still Mark VC founder and managing partner Elise Clean. Going viral today is a Bloomberg scoop on Amazon's big plan for its content budget. Well, we've been making TikToks about it because Amazon will spend more than a billion dollars a year to produce movies, Ed, that will release in theaters and the largest commitment to cinema by any internet company, according to sources. Now, that would be, what, 12 to 15 movies per year, and the news sent AMC, Cinemark shares, powering higher because Amazon has been somewhat of an ally to these theater groups, while other streamers, like Netflix, have sort of struggled with a strategy to release content on their service in theaters or indeed simultaneously between the two. That said, though, of course, Netflix actually releases dozens more movies a year compared to what Amazon produces. But Amazon did like to get into theaters. Remember when it first acquired movies and film festivals, eventually earning Academy Award nominations for The Big Sick and for Manchester by the Sea. It then went on more recently to buy film studio MGM. And despite declining ticket sales, filmmakers, Hollywood veterans, talent representatives are all pushing for media companies to embrace theatres. And Ed, I really think this is evidence of their commitment to MGM and yeah. the fact that people perhaps do want to consume movies in different kinds of ways. Remember when Amazon bought MGM, key names for MGM left, producer Jackie Lopez in my ear, Manchester by the Sea, but I can't really name another big hit from Amazon. I did love Rings of Power. That's a TV series, right? Yeah. Interesting to see what happens. Yeah, the fact that they're doing this two-pronged approach now. Meanwhile, of course, Ed, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. And, of course, we're breaking, taking a break on TV for Thanksgiving, but follow us on social, hey? Yep, and wherever you get your podcasts, this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.